at Arnold Organic, we know that when we take care of the earth, the earth also takes care of us. You'd be surprised by our environmentally friendly way of baking breads. Our ingredients are farmed per strict USDA organic standards that make the soil richer and promote biodiversity. Our bakeries are powered by renewable wind energy, and we donate 1% of our revenues to environmental causes as members of 1% for the planet, so that future generations can flourish too. Arnold Organic Bread, great taste that's sustainably baked. What's happening, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Pod Street Bullies. My name is Derek. And I am John. What's going on, everybody? And we have a very special guest joining us here today. We have Mr. Mike Comito. Mike, tell everybody hello. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. Uh, So we've had you on before, but for some of the listeners that aren't familiar with your work, let us know a little bit about what you do here. Yeah, so I'm, uh, I guess, a hockey historian, hockey writer, hockey uh, author. Uh, I do a lot of my writing uh, to for the LA Kings at lakings.com. Uh, I also wrote a book a couple years ago called Hockey 365. Uh, it has 365 short hockey history stories, one for every day of the year. Uh, so a lot of my social media focuses on, you know, promoting the game's history, kind of looking back into the past and seeing, you know, what we can take from history and better help us contextualize what's happening on the ice uh, these days, although there's not a lot happening on the ice these days. But, uh, yeah, if you uh, if you want to find uh, all my work and all my social or all my uh, hockey history nuggets, you can go to at Mike Comito on Twitter. And you have some of the best <laughs> hockey history nuggets out there. Oh, for sure. I was going to say, you know, for anybody who's not following Mike, who's a hockey fan, you have to follow Mike because every day there's – at least a handful of just great hockey knowledge that you provide, man. It's really uh, just a great thing to read every day. Thanks. I, I find that there's been a bit of an uptick lately. Obviously, I think people are hockey starved, so I've noticed that uh, I think the tweets are going farther than they normally do. I mean, I'm always good for the odd banger here or there, but I feel like every day there's at least something that goes off more than it probably should because I think people are just looking for any kind of hockey content and blasts from the past are, uh, are always fun. Yeah, I did I see- feel their pain. I saw Spit and Chicklets picked up one of your tweets the other day. Um, I, f- I can't I recall which one. Uh, yeah, they- I can't. Um, I'm trying to think. Either. It had to be something maybe related to. There's been a couple in the past with Ryan Malone related, but I don't think that was one recently. I, yeah, I, I can't. I can't recall. But um, yeah, I wish I would have known. That would have made this uh, this point a little bit better that I had. But I don't. <laughs> have, I can't no, but that's pretty neat. I mean, and like you said, we're all hockey starved. We're all looking for something to discuss with the people we typically interact with on Twitter, which is, brings us to our point that we want to talk hey, about actually, today. Derek, John's Derek, real quick, here. I'm going to cut you off for a second. <laughs> Just Surprise. real quick, Mike, I have a question for you. Yeah. So the NHL network now, right? It's all old games. You know, a few weeks ago I was watching, I think 1989 Stanley cup being a hockey historian. Do you enjoy watching the old games or are you like, eh, no, I saw. I actually saw this. Like somebody was talking about this on Twitter the other day about how they're not a fan of, of watching old games. I think I'm of the of the mind where if it's a game that I can't reasonably have expected to ever have watched in my time on this earth, then I'll watch it. I mean, even before I can actually recall this, uh, 
you know, before all this stuff happened, I was, I was at a bar probably a few months ago with a buddy and they were playing an old Oilers game. And I had obviously never seen it because I know it was from like 85, 86 season. Um, and it's just, I, I like going back and just kind of seeing how the game was played at that point. I mean, I've seen a lot of those clips over the years, obviously going back and watching, you know, what I can, but I mean, I still, I think I get a kick out of it. Obviously I'm not making plans to sit down and, and have my wife sit through a, a exactly. yeah. North Stars game. Um, she <laughs> knows that you're going to know the results and who cares, but, uh, it's fun, I think, when you're kind of passing through just to kind of see just how much the game has changed and how different it was back then. Oh, for sure. And now I find myself, like, hoping I don't know the result of the game. Like, yeah. just I pray that I don't know the final score of this game so I can enjoy it just a little bit more. But I, I'm the same way. These days I will watch anything. Yeah, because, I mean, a lot of the teams, I think, have been doing re-airs of games from this past season. But, I mean, if you've watched the game already this season, right. as much as I'm hockey star, like, I'm not going to sit through another game where – not only have I watched it already, but I definitely know the outcome. And, you exactly. Know, I've read about the outcome in, in other ways as well, right? So, right. Like 80s or 90s. All right, Derek, you can talk now. Yeah, but uh, much to your point here too, what's interesting to me is that some of these teams are broadcasting actual like NHL 20, like the video game simulations. Uh, the mm-hmm. Flyers just did it with the Penguins, which, I mean, it, it's kind of you either love it or you it's hate it. It's a little it. much. Yeah. That's a little much. I mean, what's your take on that? Yeah, like, I haven't, do you enjoy I haven't, that? I've been kind of watching, like, I think the Kings were one of the first ones to start doing that, uh, you know, on their Twitch account, and I would kind of follow it on Twitter when they'd post clips here and there, but again, um, I also haven't played NHL, uh, the series, in a little bit, of, in a little bit, so I'm not as big on the video games. Uh, I mean, it was, I think it's cool for sure, it was the first little while when, you know, we weren't having hockey for the, like, the second or third straight week, but at this point, again, I think much to my point earlier that I am hockey star, but I'm not, you know, going to start. I'm not going to watch a full uh, Twitch feed just to kind of get my fix as to how this, you know, uh, simulated, uh, you know, hockey game is going online. Right, agreed. I'm with you. It, it was cool at first, but now it's like, eh, you know, I've had enough of this. I want the real thing. Um, yeah. But if we're going to get to the real thing here, we want to talk about. What's happening right now? Obviously, we know that the season has been suspended until further notice, really. And this is not the first time that this has happened. And that's why we're having Mike on. Being the hockey historian that he is, he knows about prior seasons where seasons have either started late, ended early. Sometimes the Stanley Cup wasn't even awarded. And we wanted to get into some of these seasons and talk about maybe a couple similarities between now and then. And, you know, just kind of harp on a few of those uh, few of those seasons where play was missed, essentially. And we're going to go, first off, all the way back, we want to go to the 1918-1919 season. And it was the season of the Spanish flu. So there was a pandemic going on like there is now. And, Mike, I want you to tell us a little bit, kind of some general knowledge about that season and how it kind of unfolded. Yeah, so obviously at that time, as you'd mentioned, you know, the Spanish flu, you know, influenza pandemic that was gripping the world after the end of the First World War, you know, with soldiers and, and people kind of returning to where they came from. And they're bringing back uh, this virus. And by the end, by the end of the, the inf- like by the end of the, the pandemic, sorry, there had been more than 50 million people that died. So again, very much, um, you know, a, a global killer, so to speak. And so, and I mean, even as far as the NHL was concerned, uh, hockey wasn't immune from the, the effects of that. I mean, even before that season started, Hamby Shore, uh, who was who played for the Ottawa Senators, he died, you know, before the 1918-19 campaign. Uh, but really, I think what obviously draws the similarities to what we're going on right now with the with the COVID-19 pandemic is is how it impacted uh, the play of the Stanley Cup final. So 
Uh, you know, back in those days, the way it worked, the NHL League champion would go on and play, you know, the Pacific uh, Coast Hockey Association champion. And so in this case, in 1919, it was the Montreal Canadiens and the Seattle Metropolitans. And these two teams, you know, had played two years earlier uh, in 1917. And Seattle actually won that time, uh, becoming the first American-based club to win the Stanley Cup. Um, and so they're, they go on to have this rematch in 1919 in the middle of this, uh, this influenza pandemic. And they play five games. The series ends up getting tied uh, two, two, and one. But while they're you know playing the series and getting ready for that sixth and deciding game, you know players are getting uh, they're getting sick. Uh, you had you know five players, including the the Canadians uh, owner George Kennedy, who were kind of over in a, a hotel that had been converted into kind of like a hospital sort of where they were you know battling fevers and things like that as they kind of combated the flu. Um, and as they're kind of starting to realize that you know it's likely that this the series is not going to be able to be played because you know you have got four or five canadians players who are out completely out of commission the stanley cup trustees had offered to give seattle a cup uh but they had refused they obviously didn't want to win it that way they wanted to actually you know win it on the ice in that sixth deciding game uh but you know after i think assessing the situation and realizing that this was very serious and these players were were very sick uh the league had canceled the sixth uh and deciding game and so that was the first time, obviously, uh, outside of the lockout now uh, in 2004-05 where the Stanley Cup was never awarded. Uh, and it's kind of, um, I think, obviously, it hits a little more, uh, it's a little more devastating than just not awarding the Cup. I mean, a few days later today when we're talking, it's the, the 101, 101st anniversary of when Joe Bullet or Joe Hall, whose nickname was the Bullet, uh, he died of pneumonia, you know, brought on by complications of, of battling the flu. And so he oh, was wow. a Montreal Canadiens. Uh, and even in addition to Joe, uh, the Canadian's owner I'd mentioned earlier, George Kennedy, he he battled it as well with his players at the time. And while he got over his bout of the flu at that point, his health never fully recovered. And he ended up passing away in the fall of 1921 due to those health complications of, of having influenza. And I think the most somber reminder of that season that never was officially finished is that it's still engraved on the Stanley Cup where you have, you know, 1919, uh, Montreal Canadiens, Seattle Metropolitans, and then below it is is just the uh, the inscription that says "Series not completed." Oh wow! It's an interesting it, tidbit there. Yeah, that's uh, very sombering. Mike, I, I I have a question. When you said they were going to reward it to Seattle, why were they going to give it to Seattle and not Montreal? Oh, uh, that's a good question. I don't know the exact rationale because I mean the way the other way you could look at it, Seattle just won it two years earlier against Montreal, right? So it's not as if like it was a situation where the other team had won before, and we're going to kind of give it to you as a as a show of good faith. Uh, I mean, I think maybe just some you know goodwill or some Canadian old fashioned Canadian hospitality. Uh, you know, <laughs> the fact that the series was tied, and maybe they felt you could flip a coin, and the right thing to do, considering uh, you know Lord Stanley donated uh, to be like a a, tr- a championship trophy for uh, a Canadian team at the when he originally did it. Maybe that's why. But yeah, I'm not entirely sure as to what the rationale was as to why they decided. You know, they would want to offer it to Seattle over, let's say, just giving it to Montreal and kind of going their separate ways. Could but you either, imagine that Now, from my research here, it seems that Montreal tried to forfeit the series because what I read was that after Pete Muldoon, the owner of Seattle, had been contacted by the Montreal franchise, Muldoon actually suggested to them that they try to get some players from the Victoria Aristocrats, my apologies. And the NHL president at that time, Frank Calder, refused the idea and they canceled the series right then and there. Yeah, no, I I remember that part because, I mean, even uh, 
there was there was earlier in the season Montreal had played a game against Victoria, and that's when they started to see some of the side effects of the flu, and you know it's, it's first started to kind of creep into, I think, onto the NHL's radar. But uh, yeah, I think uh, ultimately when that failed, and they realized they weren't going to be able to bring in other players, you know, that's kind of when I think the the idea of salvaging it kind of hit the skids. Yeah, and I mean, you know, you think about it these days, it's very. You know, to say that a team might not be awarded the Stanley Cup, you know, how, I guess, I'm at a loss for words here. Like, how interesting is that? You know, thinking about it, and you look back on this, let's say, you know, 20, 30 years from now, and you're like, oh, 2020, nobody won the Stanley Cup. Like, how weird is that going to be that there's kind of that gap in history? Yeah, I think it's it's definitely going to be an interesting time for sure. Because, I mean, we've seen it when it wasn't awarded in, in 2005, but we kind of had a feeling... You know, the season never had started, right? So, I mean, I think the fact that we played like 70 games or so, um, and there's a very strong likelihood that we don't get to have the remainder of the season played, and it's looking less and less likely that there's going to be a way to kind of do a playoffs in time to then have another season the following year. Um, So, I mean, it's going to be one of those really weird things, and how do you kind of reconcile all the – you know everything that happened this year, and all the all the work that the teams had done to try to get to the point to be competitive to win. Um, all the players who put in all that work. I mean, ultimately, all those stats will still remain with them. But it's just going to be another one of those kind of lost seasons where uh, it's going to be kind of hard to make sense of if that's if that's what ends up happening. Yeah, very unfortunate. I mean, and especially for some of the teams. I mean, you're losing a year of some of these guys' primes. Uh, so unfortunately as it may be, that's the case right now. And that's kind of the barrel we're looking down. Yeah. Um, before we move on to any, the next topic or the, uh, the next time, the next work stoppage, sorry, having a hard time speaking over here. Um, (laughs) Mike, so 1919, how long had the Stanley cup been awarded before that? Uh, so the first time it was awarded was in 1893. Um, so uh, the, the first official year, though, that two teams had competed for was the following year in 1894. Um, and so the, the NHA and then eventually the NHL um, you know, essentially took custody of the Stanley Cup through the Stanley Cup trustees. Uh, but up until that point, you know, that was when the NHL was playing. Uh, the Stanley Cup was still being awarded by the champion of that NHL team taking on uh, right. the West champion, the rights to the Cup. Right, so the Stanley Cup had already had some decent history by the time 1919 came around. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Cool. Hey, so then moving on to the next season where time was missed, we do have the 1992 player strike. Uh, this is a player strike. This was not uh, – there's labor disputes. There's lockouts. This was a player strike. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the 1992 season here, Mike. Well, actually, I'm going to take you back because this is one of the things where I always remember this whenever we talk about that 1992 player strike. Uh, it was, you know, the first player strike in, in league history. Uh, but the caveat there is that there was a player strike way back in 1924-25, although it was just with one team. So I'm going to quickly take you through the Hamilton okay. Tigers because I think it's a pretty cool story. So right. uh, the Hamilton right. Tigers, um, you know, they had started the 1924-25 season red hot. They were 10-4-1. Uh, they'd finished 19-10-1, and so they were first uh, in the league, which is Hamilton's best, you know, finish yet. Probably the best position to win the Stanley Cup in the franchise's history. Uh, the problem for the players that they had was that leading up to that season, the NHL had increased the number of games, and so they went from 24 games in a season to 30. 
And the players had felt that that was unfair because they weren't getting compensated for those six additional games. So heading into the playoffs that year, thinking maybe that they had some leverage because they were the first seed, they demanded an extra $200 for those six games or they wouldn't play in the playoffs. Um, the owners refused to pay uh, that additional $200 to each of their players. And so the players went on strike. And while the players were on strike, uh, the, 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 the number two, number three seeds at the time were Montreal and Toronto. And they were playing a, a two-series uh, total goals to see who would go on to play Hamilton in the final. And then while they're, comp- while they're playing this series, Montreal ends up winning that series. Um, you know, the, the players' strike ends up – they don't find a resolution – and the league just decides to just award the league championship to Montreal because they beat Toronto. So Hamilton oh, wow. doesn't play. Um, they end up actually folding. That was the last time they were in the NHL. That Obviously, the, the conflict with the players kind of led to the downfall of the team that was already struggling at that point. Um, and so Montreal then ends up going on to play the Victoria Cougars for the Cup. Uh, Victoria wins, and that was actually the last time that a non-NHL team won uh, the Stanley Cup. But again, another one of those quirky... You know, it's, it's not talked about a lot because it was only one team and it was back in 24, 25. Uh, but I think when we talk about a, the player strike, it's always uh, cool to bring up the Tigers and their their failed attempt to try to get some more money, which ultimately could have cost them uh, a Stanley Cup or at least a chance for a Stanley Cup. Yeah, that is interesting. I- I always like taking some of these stories and then trying to put them into like present day. And it's like, could you just imagine the Philadelphia Flyers one day being like, nah, you know what? This isn't we're not this isn't cutting it anymore. We don't feel like playing. Like that's just yeah. so wild. Yeah. yeah. When you think about the compensation though, I mean, let's be honest. It, it's like, you know, one of us going into our day jobs and they're like, Hey, we're gonna have you work Saturday, but we're not gonna pay you for it. Like, that doesn't seem too fair to me. <laughs> Sounds yeah, like no. teaching. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I won't say that again. <laughs> so nineteen ninety two, let's uh let's get in on this. Let's talk about what happened that season, Mike. Yeah, so that would that would have been the first league-wide strike uh, again, first time in twenty in seventy-five years in the NHL's history. It ended up lasting, you know, ten days. Uh, and one of the key uh, issues in that was, you know, obviously over it's, it's always over revenue, but in, in this case, it was kind of over player likeness. You know, they wanted to make sure that they had, you know, exclusivity over that when it came to hockey cards and other things with merchandise. Um, ultimately, also kind of increasing the play art. The, they wanted. Uh, Increased playoff funds. And we're talking earlier about, you know, wanting more money for games played. Uh, They were looking for an increased share uh, of revenue generated during the playoffs. They were also looking to ease some of the free agent restrictions, which is obviously an ongoing thing that we'll kind of see when we talk about the other uh, labor uh, stoppages in, in in the coming conversations. But ultimately it does, they do resolve it. Some of the key things that happen is that the season, you know, the following year gets extended from 80 to 84 games. Um, you know, one of the interesting things, I think, just from, a, you know, we always talk about how is NHL season too long? Should we be playing hockey in June? Because of this 10-day strike, it pushes playoffs uh, into June for the first time. And so we're having the Stanley Cup final, you know, between, uh, you know, with, with Pittsburgh being played in June for the first time ever. And then obviously, you know, that ends up becoming a hallmark of the NHL playoffs is that it's, uh, there's always hockey in June now, right? It depends on on how late it goes into the month. But uh you know, since 92, you know, there hasn't been a year where I, I don't think we've had a game that hasn't gone all the way uh, into into at least the early part, if not the middle part of June. Um, and obviously it does shake things up. Um, the NHL owners end up replacing, you know, John Ziegler, who was the president at the time uh, uh, with with Jill Stein. And, and ultimately after that, Gary Bedman comes in. Right. And then we, we kind of have that thread that will link us through the other stories that we kind of talk about. Yeah. 
Yeah, this this is the one lockout that led to Gary Bettman taking over. So this is my least favorite lockout. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have a question, and maybe this is a dumb question, but after something like this, right? And I, I'm obviously not going to really talk about the 1924 one because it was so long ago. But after something like this, has the league put something in place to kind of prevent like an in-season strike from taking place? Like, are there any like contractual obligations where that's not like they're not allowed to do it? I, I don't know if that's a stupid question, but I'm just curious. No, I don't, I don't think it's a stupid question. I just def, I don't have the answer for that. I mean, ultimately, I think if there was something that was so unfavorable to the players and, you know, they could exercise their, their – their, uh, do a wildcat strike and, and completely walk out. I mean, right. there's nothing that would prevent anybody from doing that. But as far as if there's anything written in the collective agreement that would prohibit something like that, I mean, ultimately, I think within your, your right to, uh, you know, to bargain and your right to strike that there are right. – uh, you have that those options, right? But as, as far as the wording, that that's uh, that's a question for someone much smarter than me. <laughs> now, I found oh, something really interesting with this as well. Um, you were talking about the payouts for the playoff performances, uh, and before this, it from what and from what the research that I was doing says, players would get three thousand dollars for a first round exit, twenty five thousand dollars for winning the cup, while owners and this is per game per playoff game, owners got. Five hundred thousand dollars per playoff game. That's Crazy. a little one-sided. <laughs> yeah, a little it, bit. Exactly. So you almost tend to side with the players because it's like you know these guys are getting pennies on the dollar for what the owners are getting. So it, yeah. you know how can you say, oh well, the owners have a fair argument here when you look at those numbers and then obviously the end result with the lockout, you know the players get kind of what they want. In uh, in regards to bigger payouts for playoff performances as well, trading card revenue it was at sixteen million dollars uh, from trading cards, and the players wanted their fair share of that for their likeness being used. You know, it, this is one of those things. It's like you know that it's like the underdog versus David Goli- David versus Goliath. You could say with Goliath obviously yeah. being the owners, these guys just wanted to be paid accordingly for what the league was kind of making off of them already. It's almost remnant of the NCAA making uh, ridiculous profits off the players that play in college. Yeah, no, I think it's it was definitely within – I think it was within reason, absolutely, given, especially with, with player likeness. I mean, if yeah, if you're going to be profiting off of what these guys are doing on the ice and, you know, what they're uh, – you know the how much uh, you know, the fans are kind of you know buying their stuff and gravitating towards them. Ultimately, you you got to make sure that that the people who are generating that for you are, are properly compensated. Absolutely, you have marketable players. People want their stuff, you know, and that's the people that are the products that are being bought with these people's likeness on it. They want to be compensated for it. I, it's a hard time arguing against that. Uh, but we move on from the 1992 player strike to the lockout. And I keep saying lockout. 1992 was a player strike. This in 1994-95 is a lockout. Let us hear about the 1994-95 lockout here. Yeah, so this is this is Batman's first. So you're welcome there. Um, it was <laughs> 102 days. Uh, and again, while free agency was, was a part of this one as well, I think the bigger one was obviously... Uh, you know, avoiding a salary cap, you know, from the from the players' perspective, and so the owners were kind of were pushing for for a cap or at least some sort of you know payroll structure that would kind of you know lock things into place. Um, ultimately, the players do avoid a salary cap this time around, but what they do agree to is is a rookie salary cap, and they do agree to some new salary arbitration uh, structuring. 
uh, when it comes to negotiating new deals and things. As, as far as the free agency, it was still a big uh, you know, part of that conversation. One of the concessions they did get was that through the course of this you know, six-year deal that ended up coming out of that, initially out of that lockout, was that in the first three years of that new collective agreement, you know, you could hit free agency at the age of 32, which again is also crazy now when we think about when players are hitting uh, free agency in their prime now. Uh, and then in the latter half of that agreement, you would hit free agency uh, at the age of 31. Uh, so that was allowing players, I think, to get uh, to pursue their options a little more quickly, which is obviously something that we're still seeing now is that players want to be able to kind of uh, explore their options. And so those are some of the kind of the key things for me. I think one of the other interesting things about this strike, um, and it doesn't obviously have any similarities right now because, you know, this is this was a, a labor stoppage. But at the same time, there was a baseball strike. And so there was a lot of sports that wasn't happening, you know, in, in that fall time of year. Right. So one of the interesting things for other uh, leagues like the AHL and the IHL was that they were really, you know, some of the only products uh, on ice and there was no baseball being happening right now. So some of the some of the teams were able to capitalize on this because you had people who would otherwise be going to NHL games, otherwise maybe going to MLB games. They're not doing either of those. So they're going out checking AHL games or checking out IHL games uh, and things like that. So that's kind of interesting that, you know, one of the one of the only times when we're going to talk about NHL work stoppages where uh, there's another league that's not playing at the same time. Right. So I think that. Um, you know, in, in that case, it, it helped maybe some of the other other hockey that was being played, but ultimately doesn't have an impact on what happened in NHL. I think one of the other things I just I'll throw in quickly for you guys, just because I know this is obviously a Flyers podcast, just to kind of touch on what uh, what I thought was interesting, what some of the Flyers were doing during this initial during this lockout. Um, Lindros went back to uh, Toronto. He was taking an economics course. Uh, but I think what the more interesting one is Kevin Deneen. Uh, was playing for the Houston Arrows of the IHL, and he was signed by his brother, who I think his name was Peter. And so after he signed his brother, uh, the IHL hope looking to not, uh, you know, uh, kind of step on the NHL's toes by signing more NHL players had decided that after that they weren't going to allow that anymore. So any players that were locked up in the NHL would not be able to sign an IHL contract. So just Kevin uh, got to do that. He kind of joked with reporters when he got back that it was known as the Kevin Deneen rule. Whether or not that's true, um, I'm not sure, but it sounds good that considering he was the last player to sign an agreement uh, and play in the IHL that year. Is the, is the IHL is the IHL the uh, league that had the first Vegas team? Yes, yeah, the Vegas yeah. Thunder. Awesome. Right. So basic points from this one is Bettman wanted aggressive expansion, uh, a new American TV deal, focus on growth of the product uh, specific to the southern United States and lasting labor peace under the owners' terms. So basically what he was looking for is obviously the aforementioned expansion, Southern U.S. TV deal, but lasting labor peace under the owners' terms. Mike, to you, does that sound kind of like him trying to rule with more of an iron fist saying, we're going to do things my way, we're going to do things the owners' way, uh, you know, I, that doesn't seem too fair to me, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. No, and I mean, I think you can make a pretty strong argument that it's not, but ultimately that's kind of what I think, uh, you know, obviously people take issue with, with Bettman and a lot of his tactics, but in, in many respects, his job is to kind of carry out the will of the owners, right? And for them, you know, they're going to be doing what is in the best interest for them. I mean, obviously they're going to have to make some concessions to their players, but ultimately, end of the day, uh, it, it's really about them and what they're getting back and not necessarily what is right or what's fair uh, for those players. You're right. And another interesting tidbit here, 
uh, Toronto, Detroit, the Rangers, Dallas, and Philadelphia all broke with the league because they feared an extended lockout could outweigh the benefits from getting a salary cap. They didn't want to be the first North American professional sports league to forfeit an entire season because the motive here seemed to be Bettman wanted to help out the smaller market teams in the league. So, you know, if we wanted to tie it into the Flyers here, because obviously being a Flyers podcast, I thought that was pretty interesting because Philadelphia just kind of said, hey, we're not dealing with this along with four other teams, you know, just because you want to help out these smaller teams, you know, we're a big team. We're good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it you know, was, and I mean, ultimately we were able to kind of, they were able to save the season, so to speak. It was a 102 days they were locked out, but ultimately able to come back in time and have that 40 game regular season before going into the playoffs. Yeah. Um. So one question that I have is, you know, you have this work stoppage in uh, the player strike in 92, and then you have this lockout in 94, 95. There's not a lot of time between those two things. Does the league's popularity take a hit because of this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think for the league, you know, the timing of that is is unfortunate. I mean, especially when you have like 94, the Rangers win the cup, which again, you know, you can take have your opinion on whether or not that's a good thing or not, <laughs> depending on uh, which colors you wear. But ultimately, like, this is the NHL is, is trying to capitalize on that. Bedman is obviously very much, you know, focused on expansion. You know, those new teams that he's brought in, those TV deals. I mean, ultimately, like, these are the worst things that could happen, right? Is that you have right. this, which ultimately is only 10 days. And, you know, it's not great, though, when you have, you know, like, kind of unrest. Uh, but that lockout, you know, as much as, you know, we talk about how, you know, that they're able to salvage the season, um, you know, and I think the players kind of came away from it a little bit better in the future years. Um, it, that does have a serious impact, right? I mean, you turn the fans off. I remember going back, you know, kind of trying to brush up for this conversation today, and you're reading what the players, the fans' perspectives on this is, right? And it doesn't take long for fans to kind of, you know, as much as we, you know, in our conversation, we can kind of see that, you know, it's we we side with the players on a lot of these issues, but as a fan of the game, you just want to get that product back on the ice and you want to cheer for your favorite team, right? So by the end of this, like, you don't really care whether or not it's fair. You just want to see your favorite team play. Uh, and the players and the owners be damned, right? And so, some play you've seen it in past years. I think more recently, where, where fans kind of turn their backs. And I mean, ultimately, how long they actually do that for is kind of dependent on the individual. You can easily turn and kind of take that goodwill that you've been building for the last couple of years and kind of squash it, squash it, right? And so, I think for Bedman, this is definitely not something he wanted to have because, again, with his mind focused on you know expansion, getting into kind of those Sun Belt areas, and really kind of getting those TV deals. Like this is the worst thing you could do is is essentially turn off your sport uh, for half the season. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, sorry. At, <laughs> at least, uh, no, sorry. Uh, at least it would kind of set him up for the next few lockouts that this guy would go through, huh? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. A grizzled vet uh, by the time we get uh, you know to to present day. Oh yeah, Batman is no stranger to a lockout, <laughs> and uh, as evidenced by the next point we have, the 2004-2005 NHL lockout, um, like you had mentioned before, a lot of the same arguing points, you could say, um, mm-hmm. the salary cap, things of that nature, but run us through, I guess, the 2004-2005 lockout here, Mike. Yeah, so again, the salary cap kind of comes back and rears its ugly head. I mean, for Bedman and the owners, the key thing that they wanted out of this was a salary cap, uh, but more broadly, cost certainty for the league. And so what they really wanted was a salary cap that was tied to league revenue. Uh, the players, not that they necessarily wanted a salary cap, but they didn't want, you know, obviously that uh, 
to tethering it to league revenue, right? They wanted something that was fixed, that wasn't kind of dependent on, you know, how well the league did and kind of altering uh, the system from there. And so that was really the focus, you know, going into it. Um, you know, this is one of those ones where as it kind of drags on, it, it's becoming apparent that it's not looking good. And, you know, there's some talks that, that happen, go on for hours and then break down. And then ultimately we get that, uh, we get the word on uh, February 16th, 2005, that they are canceling the season, uh, thereby becoming the first, you know, pro sports league in North America to, you know, to cancel an entire season, right? So this is the second time now we go back to that 1919 season where there would be no Stanley Cup. Um, ultimately, they end up reaching their agreement in July of 2005. And I think the other thing that's worth noting here is that, you know, prior to reaching that in July, like there was talk that like this might go in and, and, and kind of take away some of the games from the following season, right? There wasn't, wow. it wasn't certain that they would resolve this in time and we'd maybe you know, it was looking like there could be another interruption that maybe this will kind of go into the 2005, 2006 season. Luckily that doesn't happen. Um, and so they reached that agreement. They do bring in the salary cap finally. Um, and, but I think some of the other things that is obviously the salary cap is, 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 is I think the most significant piece to kind of come out of this, but just for the play on the ice, obviously the, the, uh, the lockout really kind of changes things. You know, they, they remove the red line, uh, which ultimately allows for, uh, you know, for those those two line passes, which ultimately speeds up the game. You know, they're cracking down on obstruction. Uh, getting rid of ties is another big thing, and so a lot of things, obviously, that change the structure of the league, but also the play of uh, of the league as well, which I think is interesting. And you have a couple interesting things coming with this. Um, you know, they announced the cancellation of the season on the sixteenth of February. Two days later, apparently, the hockey news reported that a deal with a $45 million cap was made, but then immediately after that happened, both sides, the owners and the players, denied the report and then had a six-and-a-half-hour meeting, still no agreement, and the season was officially lost. I mean, you know, being a member of the media, obviously, with you, Mike, it's kind of irresponsible to report something like that. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, and who knows what ends up happening behind in those backroom deals, right? Whether or not they had one and then it did fell through or, you know, again, I'd have to go back and, and check out that report. But I think people are just, I think at that point, just really hoping that, you know, this, the whole season was going to be lost. And, you know, they did have a lot of those those meetings that had dragged on, you know, for hours upon hours. Um, whereas it's, it's tough to say who a source was. Maybe they got it wrong. But I think maybe I, I in, in that case, I would kind of side with whoever was just trying to, Maybe whatever they'd heard, uh, you know, taking the silver lining towards it, potentially having a deal. But ultimately, we know that that wasn't wasn't the case. Oh, yeah. And then you get to teams like Washington. Uh, Washington was having a fire sale of their players because they were losing so much money. Edmonton actually came out and publicly stated that they would have folded had it not been for this lockout. I mean, how dire of a situation was it for teams like this that they're actually thankful that there was a lockout? Yeah, because I mean, you have teams like that who are saying that, like, if we had to play, play or pay, or pay our players for that entire season, right? Like, that would have put the financial pinch. I mean, that's I think that's you've seen that in past uh, uh, lockouts as well, where ultimately after even the labor stoppage ends and we go back to play, you see the relocation of Canadian teams following that 1994-95 lockout, right? Yeah. Um, and so ultimately, I think as much as it kind of gives these teams a reprieve. Um, you know, if you're having, you know, issues with attendance or, or, or financial issues, you know, a locket will kind of only grant you so much breathing room before ultimately, you know, the chickens are going to come home to roost. And some of those underlying problems that are more systemic than anything else, where they're going to kind of, they're never really going to go away. Absolutely. 
And John was going to add something here, it appears. <laughs> was I? Was I? I don't know. Maybe I'm just looking at Skype and I see your picture up like I thought you were talking, but maybe I'm mistaken. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, I do have a question, but maybe it's better for the next lockout, but I'll ask for it. I'll ask it anyway. When does Gary Bettman's job like start to get put into jeopardy or does it ever happen with any of these? I mean, the guy is a part of three lockouts. Like, do people start questioning whether or not he's the man to do this? Well, I think among the fans, for sure. I mean, he's the he's the face on the owner side throughout these these entire processes. Right. But ultimately, I think I think it's I, I think the owners have, have kind of voted with, uh, you know, I, I forget what the expression is. They always say vote with your feet, but that doesn't really make any sense in this particular analogy, right? But they've uh, they've they've bestowed their confidence in him after all these years, right? Ultimately, as much as you know the lost revenue by not having a season, he, he has done I think a, a decent job on their side at getting them what they're looking for. Um, right. Ultimately, if it's not entirely what they want, but I think on their side and their perspective, he's done well by them. Um, but again, that's that's just that one perspective, right? I mean, I think now he's. Well, '93 was when he came in, right? So he's been at this for uh, for 27 years, and he's uh, you know continuing to do his job. So we'll we'll see if, if at any point. But I I can't recall if there was any uh, if there was actual any you know tangible you know reports at the time saying whether or not you know, he was losing favor with the owners in any of those three lockouts. It's possible that obviously you'd have maybe a disgruntled base, but ultimately I think that you know he's kind of you know carrying out the marching orders, so to speak. So. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's the interesting thing, because when you think of like teams, right, the the face or the head coach is always kind of the scapegoat, you know, regardless of whether or not he's the reason that a team is failing. He's kind of the first one to go. And Gary Bettman is the face of the NHL. So it's just interesting that like that same mentality doesn't apply, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I hear you. Yeah, And I guess one last tidbit, if we're going to tie this into the Flyers. At loosely tied into the Flyers at that. Uh, late in January of 05, the hockey media's self-appointed point of no return. Negotiators took over four meetings later. There was no deal, and they cited philosophical differences. I thought that was kind of funny just because that was the reason why Hextall was fired, the uh, philosophical differences. <laughs> I actually that is, that is good, but I actually I thought maybe you are going to go with something else because I had a Flyers tie-in here as well just to kind of tie back to our previous point about, you know, what is the impact of, of these lockouts on from the fan perspective? And so Ronick, uh, who was with the Flyers at the time, yes. was always pretty vocal during these these uh, these lockouts. He was he was vocal in 1994-95, but obviously not quite to the extent in 2004-05. So I kind of want to read this one quote that he had just because I think it kind of encapsulates how, you know, fans could initially be, I think, sympathetic to the players' cause. But then by the end of this, you know, uh, and, you know, and again, salaries are one thing, but uh, you, you have Ronick out here saying everybody out there who calls us spoiled because we play a game, they can all kiss my ass. They can all kiss my ass because we've tried so hard to get back on the ice. So, I mean, when I, I get the frustration on players, but ultimately when you come out and you start to tell fans, uh, yeah. to, you know, to stick somewhere, um, you know, that's that doesn't really help anybody. Right. And so I think that's kind of an interesting thing where, you know, by the end of this, people's views kind of sour on things, especially when. Uh, you know, these are high, these well compensated athletes, right? And ultimately, they are playing a game for our entertainment. But by the same token, uh, you can only really kind of get so much, uh, you know, favor from the fans. So at the end of the day, we'll just kind of see these guys as 
as, as highly compensated and, and really not uh, doing their job at the time, right? So, you well, know, it kind of reminds me of uh, a story that has nothing to do with hockey, but it, <laughs> I, I'm going to tell it anyway. This is the so, one sidebar you get tonight. <laughs> one sidebar. I know we have a guest. I'll only go one sidebar, but I'm going to do it anyway. So, I think it was like my freshman year of college. Over the summer, me and my buddies went to, went to go see the Counting Crows play at like an outdoor venue. Uh, you're both familiar with the Counting Crows, I assume. Yes. Oh, of course. Okay. So anyway, he comes out and he, the, the lead singer is is out there, um, and he comes out and he goes, "We don't care what you want to listen to. We're gonna play whatever we damn well please." So he played maybe one or two hits, and people started walking out, and he was getting so angry. But it's like, dude, you can't entertain and then tell the group of people like we don't really give a crap what you want to listen to we're going to do whatever we want so i know it really doesn't have to do with hockey uh but it just reminded me because ronick is kind of like screw the fans and this guy was kind of like screw the fans and i don't like the counting crows anymore because he's a (laughs) jerk (laughs) it makes perfect sense Yeah, that sounds like a, that doesn't sound like a great uh, way to start a concert. That's for sure. Oh no! When you're playing all of like your B sides, it's like, dude, come on! Like, really? This is not what I we paid for. Mr. Jones on repeat. That's what I came here for. <laughs> oh, but yeah, back to the Ronick point too. I mean, let's be honest. Jr's never been one to you know bite his tongue when it comes to controversial Ooh. topics like this as well. Uh, no. But we get to the most recent lockout and. It's the 2012-2013, which we all remember. Um, I can tell you exactly where I was when play resumed because the first game of the Flyers' season that year was against the Penguins, and I have never been more excited for hockey to begin. So run us through what happened here, what the owners wanted, players wanted, uh, you know, and how this thing got resolved here, Mike. Yeah, and I'll just share quickly uh, my – I remember exactly where I was through some of this as well. I was in Albany, New York. Uh, for part of this, because I was doing research uh, for my PhD at the time, and I didn't, I didn't think anything of it. I just knew that there was no NHL hockey. But then I realized while I was staying in Albany that uh, the Albany Devils, uh, obviously the, the New Jersey's affiliate, was there, and they were still playing. And so that night they were playing the Adirondack Phantoms. And so um, I went to check out that game alone, the first time ever I've been to a hockey game alone, uh, which is fine. I mean, people go to the movies alone. I've never done it, but I hear that it's great. It is great. Going to hockey game alone was fine too, although I didn't. Uh, I don't think I was uh, drinking as much as I would have liked to have been. I, think, I feel like you still need one more person to really kind of, you know. Anyway, but a long story short, it uh, the the Phantoms lost, but there was two penalty shots that game, both goals. Uh, Adam Henrique scored, and then Zach Ronaldo scored. So in a, this Zach was back, Ronaldo, Oof. yeah, he was on the score sheet for a different reason. So that is <laughs> that's actually the only AHL game I've ever been to. Um, but there you go. That's because of the 2012-13 lockout where you had a lot more of those players on those teams that would probably otherwise maybe not necessarily have been playing, um, you know, you know, you know, down in the A at the time, but obviously a good way for them to kind of keep developing. Um, you sure went to more Phantoms games where Ronaldo was playing. Maybe he would have ended up with being a little bit more successful on the score sheet. <laughs> I was actually in the Adirondacks, you know. I was doing my research there and then I was driving up to Albany. Right. And so I had, I actually at that point had not really kind of figured out where the Adirondacks were. Um, so I would have liked to have caught a game there. I don't know where they played at the time. Um, cause it's not a very big uh, community, but, but nevertheless, I, I digress. That's my one sidebar. So, <laughs> I love the Adirondacks. That's I actually go up there every summer. I live in New York. Um, okay. 
And uh, they play in Glens Falls. I mean, the Adirondack okay. Thunder are now uh, the ECHL, but it's right by, like, the Saratoga area. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, I can't remember. I was staying at, like, uh, I, I, forget, I was at the Adirondack Museum. Um, I forget oh, exactly where I I've was. gone there before, yeah. Okay. yeah. My grandparents have taken me there a few times. I don't remember ever being too interested, but. Yeah, I remember there was a lot of deer and a lot of wild turkeys. <laughs> wild turkeys, like the, the animal, like the bird, or are we talking whiskey? No, no, unfortunately, this game <laughs> All right, hockey. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So we'll go. We'll jump back to the 2012-13 lockout, and and ultimately, you know, now the salary cap is not as much of an issue anymore because we have one now. Um, but the big thing here for the owners is is reducing the player's share of hockey-related revenue. Um, at the time, it was actually at 57. percent So in the in the players' favor. Uh, getting some of that uh, HRRR. Um, and ultimately, one of the other things the owners wanted to do as well was kind of reduce contract lengths. Um, they they actually wanted to shorten them, I think from what I read, to as, as low as four years. Um, they really wanted to extend that free agency eligibility period going from seven years to 10 years. So you wouldn't be able to become a free agent until you'd had, I guess, 10 years of service under your belt. Um, you know, the players, again, wanted that fixed cap. Uh, they didn't want it tied to, to league revenue. Um, so ultimately, it's kind of one of those ones where we do get hockey back. Everyone kind of wins, but everyone also kind of loses in the sense that no one really kind of gets what they want. Um, they do limit the contract extensions to eight years if you're with the team, seven years for free agents. Um, they don't end up really getting that uh, what they want in terms of pushing that free agency period up to 10 years. Uh, I forget where they end up leaving it at. Uh, but they do bring revenue share back down to 50-50. So the advantage that the players had at that point is gone after this lockout. They're now you know, splitting it evenly with the owners. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, that's, I think I remember, I, I remember this one pretty vividly. Obviously I was still, you know, around, uh, you know, just, I think going to university, uh, in the 2004 five lockout, but this is one where you're just kind of waiting and waiting and hoping that, you know, is this going to happen? And, or is it going to go the other way? Are we actually going to lose an entire season again? You know, and you know, this is, I think really at my point where, Obviously, I was kind of always been a crazy hockey fan and interested in all that. But this is really kind of when I started getting more and more into fantasy hockey. And you start to think about the fantasy hockey implications of not being able to play the season. And what are you going to do with your players that you had kept? Is anyone going to trade trade you for them? All those things, right? So, uh, but those are kind of the key points, uh, you know, that we kind of talk about from there. Yeah, I still, and I'll take my sidebar here as well. When this season resumed, I remember much like you were saying, I was just distraught over the fact that there was no hockey because that's what I look forward to every year. The start of the hockey season, the entire way through. There, When news came through on January 6th when they reached the agreement, I was ecstatic. And there was a bar right down the street from where I was living. I was still living with mom and dad. And I went there and I'm watching the game. And the Flyers are starting to lose to the Penguins. I'm pissed off. I left, came home, watched the rest of the game at the house because my mom's a big Flyers fan as well. So we sat there and sulked together. At least I had somebody who had a shoulder I could cry on after that game. But regardless, um, much to John's point with the last lockout, the 0-4-0-5, this is Bettman's third stoppage of play as commissioner of the NHL. Now, I understand that he is representing the owners, so I'm sure the owners are happy because they're getting kind of what they want and Bettman is at the forefront of that. As the players, when you're not getting, you know, they're they're taking away some of the revenue, they're, you know, implementing all these rules and all these changes, 
let's say, Mike, you're you're an NHL player. How does this sit with you after this lockout? And the current CBA is set to expire here shortly, if I'm not mistaken. Are you looking forward to another potential lockout because there's going to be some other issue that arises that owners are going to say, we want to change that and we're going to put our foot down until it's changed? Yeah, I mean, I think as a player, obviously, you're always going to be looking for, you know, um, you know, the path of least resistance in order to help you better do your job. But ultimately, by the same token, I think a lot of these players are are smart and acute to, to realize that if, if something is unfair, they're willing and they've had, you know, taken the stance in the past you know, kind of fight for what, what they believe to be fair and right, you know, not only for their careers, but the careers of players that are kind of, kind of coming up beneath them, right? And so it's it's interesting now because as the league, you know, is increasingly getting younger, uh, especially now more than ever, you're going to have a new group of players who are going to kind of come into potentially the next uh, lockout or labor shortage, or stoppage, sorry, um, who've never really kind of gone through this before, right? I mean, You've got a lot of players who were obviously around from the from the 2012-13 lockout, but with the way the league is trending with the young players, uh, it's a whole new crop here who've never encountered this before. And are they going to view this the same way as their predecessors? You know, odds are, are odds are they will because you're still going to have all of that veteran presence around at that time. But it's going to be interesting to see when you've never had a group that's experienced this before. I mean, this is. Um, you know, now we're kind of coming up on, on eight years out from the last one, um, which was, you know, I guess roughly the same time from the 2004-05 to the 2012 one that we're talking about now. Uh, but a lot in the league has changed since then, right? And so it really will be interesting to see how it is handled by, I think, some of those younger group of players who are increasingly, that is how the league is, is marketing itself now, right? Is it's to these young players who are tearing it up. They're fast. They're fun to watch. Um, it's it, It'll be interesting, to say the least. Yeah. And, you know, I find another thing that's interesting is kind of what this COVID-19, you know, what how they've had to address this. Like they can't afford to have a lockout like that could be crippling for the NHL if you essentially lose the rest of the season, possibly even can't award a Stanley Cup. And then what is it, two, three years from now? Or is it even sooner? Um, the next CBA. Does anybody know? Uh, I don't familiar. Two years? Two years? Yes. I'm not sure. I'd have to look it up. Well, I mean, just imagine that then there's a lockout. I mean, fans, including me, will be pissed. Absolutely. And once again, the popularity of this sport, you know, for the casual fans is going to take a hit. I mean, you'll always have your hardcore fans, but I find that that's the biggest problem with the NHL. Whenever the popularity starts to rise, something like a lockout happens. Mm Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think the other thing, too, that's worth noting as well is, is Seattle, right? I mean, that's the last thing that Bedman would want is another lockout, you know, as they're getting ready to bring another club into the league, especially, you know, if you're according like you're now dealing with those owners who are now part of the group to say, like, I paid you, you know, $500 million. You know, why am I not, you know, getting, why am I not getting my product on the ice? And so, I mean, I think from that perspective, I agree that, again, with all the revenue lost, um, you know, and then having another lockout, you know, potentially, you know, turning the fans away that have been brought on board. But then also the Seattle thing is right, another, right. Uh, I think, key point that will kind of determine how maybe the NHL and the league side approaches this lockout. Maybe they won't be as uh, iron fisted as they have been in the past. I doubt it. But ultimately, I think they have just as much to lose, you know, this time around as, as the players do in this case, because they're the ones that are going to want this to kind of happen. Right. And so we kind of see how. 
you know, they're potentially looking at the Olympics as, as maybe kind of a lever they could use. Although, you know, in my opinion, and I'm sure in the opinion of a lot of the players, you know, the Olympics shouldn't be a bargaining chip, but um, that's, you know, for the, for the owners and for, for Bedman, it seems to be, that's the case, whether or not that will fly and they'll take that as, as that to kind of help us get through and get that next CBA ratified and avoid a stoppage uh, remains to be seen, but it'll be, I think, yeah, especially with COVID right now, um, that's something that no one could have anticipated as having exactly. an impact on the next round of negotiations. You almost have to kind of chalk it up to, you know, some sort of a mulligan because, like you said, this is unforeseen. We, no one knew this was going to happen. No one knew that the season was going to be put on hold, you know, with the potential of the Stanley Cup not being awarded. And much to that point with the Stanley Cup, we go back to the lockout. Uh, in 2004-2005, there was a movement that arose during that lockout to free the Stanley Cup, and it was later granted around that time so that if the NHL did cancel the season, the Cup could be awarded to another team in another league. So to kind of cap this off, let's have a little bit of fun with it. Can we say right now that if there is no Stanley Cup winner this year from the NHL, is there another league that this that the Stanley Cup could be awarded in? Are they uh, playing? I would say no, because there there was definitely a there definitely was like a, a free the cup movement at that time, you know, and even like among beer league teams saying, you know, can, <laughs> can we the cup? Um, you, uh, but I think one of the, I think probably one of the more credible ones that came out through that period was uh, at the time Canada's Governor General Adrian Clarkson had suggested that the women's national teams between Canada and the U.S. play for the cup, um, and I don't know how far. That actually got in the official process, but it was later reported that that wasn't going to happen. And so, you know, that's this is now you know 16 years out from the last time. So it's certainly possible. I think that just in this case, given that we're you know if, if this was a lockout, yeah, I'd probably be a little more optimistic. But the fact that nobody can play anything right. now, um, you know, I think would be the would be the the one uh, reason why we probably wouldn't see that. Although it would be pretty hilarious. Uh, if you had some, you know, amateur leagues or men's leagues, even for that matter, or women's leagues for that matter, um, you know, kind of playing for the Stanley Cup, that way you can finally live out that that childhood dream that so few of us have have wanted, but obviously would never never get to. Little did you know, there's actually a group of scientists in Antarctica that have a league, and uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> that, no, I'm making this up. No, it's but, the scientists uh, against the penguins and the polar bears. Like it's, right, you know. <laughs> we could award the cup to one of them. I was going to say, I thought this was like the second sidebar, and I was hoping that there was that this outpost somewhere that they they have a regular season that they play, and yeah, I'd be all for that. I, I'd be all for any hockey at this point, so if we can play in Antarctica safely, then right. let's, let's do it. Let's do it. Ship them down there. Let's go. How cool would that be, though, to see a women's team win the Stanley Cup? Like, How awesome would that be to like see just these incredible athletes that are women holding up that Stanley cup. Like it's groundbreaking. It's revolutionary. But like, like you said, you know, everybody's dream, like these women have the same dream that these guys do in the NHL. How cool would that be for them to be able to realize that and say, I hoisted the Stanley cup. Like we won it. Yeah, no, I think it would be, uh, I mean, everyone kind of, you know, the Stanley cup is, is arguably the best trophy in all of sports. I think, you know, anybody, would love to hoist that. I mean, ultimately, I think the other thing that's kind of interesting too about the fact that Clarkson was the one who really pushed for that is that ended when they ended up forming, you know, the Canadians Women Hockey League. Uh, the trophy that they award there is the Clarkson Cup, 
Um, and it's, it's obviously named in honor of Adrian Clarkson, uh, much like the way that the Stanley Cup is named after, you know, Governor General uh, Lord Stanley. Yeah. Well, we've gotten through all the lockouts, the work stoppages. Uh, let's, let's hope that we can get some hockey back on the tube here because, quite frankly, I want it back. I, I'm going crazy right now. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, and I do have a question for you, Mike. You know, based off of all of these other, you know, I know it's different because they were lockouts. And, I mean, you have to go back to 1919 for a pandemic. Um, but when do you think the league would have to be able to start playing again, What even if they canceled the season and started up with playoffs? When do you think they'd have to start that up in order for us to have a playoff and award a Stanley Cup for this season? Yeah, that's that's interesting because I've seen that players proposal that was kind of circulating on TSN, you know, maybe a couple of weeks ago where they were looking at, you know, coming back and having a training camp, you know, in like a, a camp in June or July so they can finish the regular season and then you would play the playoffs, you know, kind of August, September. Um, and then you would kind of come back, you know, within you know a month or two and, and run the next season. Right. And to me, I don't think those timelines really make any sense. I mean, the, the COVID you know, like situation is changing day by day. And I think it's more and more likely that it's not really going to be possible, I think, to, to get back in time to do in such a, I think, a comprehensive way. Um, yeah, I don't, it's, it's a tough one, right? Because ultimately we've seen what's happened when players go on bye weeks and like how out of shape they are not out of shape, but like it does take them a few day games to get kind of back into the rhythm. We've seen injuries coming off right after a bye week. You know, these guys now, like, we're all been in, in quarantine for, you know, three, four weeks, some of us. And so by the time this happens, like, there's a lot of rust that they're going to have to shake off. And for me, as much as, like, you know, the regular season is, you, know, you have to kind of cap that off to find out how we're going to do the playoffs. But to think that we're going to do the regular season and finish off those remaining you know, 10, 11 games, like, I think let's all be realistic that that's not going to happen. Um, and as much as I want hockey back, like, I don't think it's even realistic at this point now to think that we're going to get the playoffs um, you know, this year, unless the league was to look at something potentially where you did those playoffs later in the summer, early into the fall, and then you somehow shortened the following regular season, which is going to be a non-starter because of obviously all the hockey-related revenue that goes with those games. But I don't know how you would get the players to sign off um, necessarily to like to to do the playoffs throughout the summer. Really, only take like a month or two off and then go right back at it. But Again, if you've kind of heard what the players are talking about, a lot of them, that they want to see the conclusion of the season, right? They've all worked so hard to get to this point that I guess even if it isn't a different, you know, iteration from what we normally used to, I think they want to kind of see it come to conclusion. But it's just kind of given how everything kind of changes from day to day, week to week, it's it's so hard to say what it'll look like. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I've I keep saying over and over again on this show, this season's going to have an asterisk on it. I don't want next season to have one too. Yeah, there was um, there. I think I, I forget who it was, but like Greg Wyshynski quote tweeted, it was somebody whose idea was that you'd make a mega season where you would just like this season's done. We're not going to get it back. We're not going to have the playoffs. We're not going to finish the regular season. You just then tack on the next regular season to this, so all of the points. And all of the games carry oh, over. Oh, wow. This, like, 140-game season. is As much as there's probably a lot of holes you could poke into that if you actually sat down and thought about it, I think I just want mega season. And just to see, <laughs> you know, what that would look like and how all the hockey purists would, would you know, their heads would explode when oh, yeah. oh, Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisel have, like, 250 points because they combine <laughs> all the games. And now Wayne Gretzky doesn't have the season, the season uh, 
uh, single season records anymore, it would be it would be wonderful. <laughs> That's an interesting point. That would be wild. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, we've gotten through all these. Mike, we'd like to thank you for coming on and sharing your insight here, talking a little bit about some of the shortages and some of the seasons that we missed some play. Once again, please let us know where the listeners, where we can all find you, uh, social media, all that type of stuff. Yeah, no, thanks again, guys. Appreciate it. It's always great to come on and chat, especially now. Uh, this can, at least talking about hockey kind of makes it for not watching hockey. But, uh, but yeah, you can find all my stuff on uh, on Twitter is primarily where I post it. So it's at Mike Comito. Uh, I'm still doing some writing for the Kings right now. So in the next couple of weeks, hopefully have some new stories out. Uh, and then in the meantime, every day there's new hockey history moments. Um, so go check that out if you want your hockey history fix. Um, and, yeah, that's that's basically how you can find me these days if I'm not uh, playing with my super deaker. I've got this like hockey skills game now where it's like a video game, but you're actually using your stick and this, uh, this puck that has a magnet. And it's insane. It's very addictive. Um, so <laughs> at least, at least like when, I get, when I get out of this quarantine, I'll have better hands than I did before, which isn't saying much. <laughs> so we might be seeing Mike Camito playing in the NHL in the next couple of years. Who knows? <laughs> I'm gunning for that next contract. Perfect. Hopefully a CBA dispute doesn't uh, get in the way. (laughs) Well, thanks again, Mike. We really appreciate you taking the time to spend uh, hanging out with us on a Sunday night talking some hockey here. Yeah, no, my pleasure, guys. Thank you. Have a great rest of your night, Mike. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Cheers. Uh, Always great having Mike on to talk some hockey. I mean, that guy, I'll be honest, he's one of the more brilliant minds that I've come across uh, covering, talking, and just watching hockey. But yeah, because, I mean, he takes the time to look back in history. You know, I always appreciate people like that. I'm a I'm a history person in general, you know, especially like American history. So I kind of have an appreciation for just like looking into the past. And what I like about it is he just doesn't like regurgitate what happened in the past. He tries to apply it to the present. You know, and kind of say how the present might go based off of things in the past. And it's it really makes for an interesting conversation. He's the exact opposite of me because that's all I do is regurgitate what happened, you know. Right. (laughs) But yeah, so, I mean, let's be honest. We could put a bow on this right now. I think we covered a lot of what we wanted to. uh, And we gave some people something to listen to that is worth their while because let's be honest, again, for probably the 30th time, there is no hockey to watch, which sucks. Right. So, I mean, John, tell us where they can find them or where they can find us. <laughs> okay. Well, you can find us um, on Twitter at pod st bullies. Uh, you can find us on the, your various podcasting thingamabobbers like iTunes and Spreaker and Spotify and my favorite, Pod Muncher. There it is. Uh, the only problem is now when you go to Pod Muncher, you have to make sure you're wearing gloves and a mask. Ah. Um, they still have you yeah, punch so in we'll... your birthday as well. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, they're thinking about also doing facial recognition just because it's getting a little crazy. That makes sense. I get it. Yeah. You know what I'm finding, man? Yeah. I'm having a really hard, hard time communicating with people. Like talking. I, I don't say. This is this is all very strange to me, like having a conversation with somebody <laughs> Other than your wife or your daughter. <laughs> or the person in my head, and I typically don't have to talk out loud for that one. Oh, yeah. That guy just, you know, he tags along most of the time for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so with that being said, you can find John on Twitter at PodStreetGove. You can find me on Twitter, Derek, at PodStreetBob. This has been the PodStreet Bullies. I guess we're not going to call it the PodStreet Pub because we actually had a guest on to talk some actual hockey stuff. But I'll always leave you with, let's go Flyers. Bye now. of us has a purpose. We are destined to do something meaningful, not only to support our loved ones, but to positively impact our communities throughout the country. What do you think a private Christian education looks like? Grand Canyon University offers over 175 high-quality online programs across nine colleges. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.